quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is CNN Breaking News. I'm standing on a rooftop looking out on Lviv on day 41 of Russia's brutal invasion of Ukraine. I'm Jake Tapper. Welcome to this special broadcast of The Lead live from Western Ukraine. Today, President Volodymyr Zelensky tried to force the United Nations Security Council to confront the reality that the UN in general and individual countries separately have not stopped Vladimir Putin and his troops who continue to bomb, to shoot, to rape, to slaughter innocent civilians. Zelensky went into graphic detail about the horrors being inflicted on the Ukrainian people, what he and his teams and our CNN crews on the ground separately have witnessed in places such as the recently liberated town of Bucha. The civilians were crushed by tanks while sitting in their cars in the middle of the road, just for their pleasure. They cut off limbs, slashed their throats, women raped and killed in front of their children. Their tongues were pulled out only because the aggressor did not hear what they wanted to hear from them. This is no different from other terrorists. It is, of course, not just Bucha. CNN's Frederick Pletkin just returned from the nearby town of Borodyanka. He spoke to volunteer body collectors who were walking through the streets, picking up the corpses of civilians who had been bound and killed. CNN teams saw entire village blocks reduced to rubble, burned out military vehicles littering the streets. In Kharkiv, where CNN's Christiana Mampour was just yesterday, local leaders say more than 50 50 Russian rockets have hit in the last day. At least six people were killed, a number of others wounded. Today, here in Lviv, we met a number of internally displaced Ukrainians who have been forced to flee their homes in Kyiv and the eastern Donbass region to travel here to the western part of the country. In the middle of Lviv's central square, just a few hours ago, I met Natalia and Maria. You see them there with their daughters. They fled their homes outside Kyiv with their children. Maria's husband works for the police, and he stayed behind every day on the phone. He tells her, she says, about the awful things he is witnessing. Maria and Natalia made these pleas. The war in Ukraine is real, and it is true that people are being killed. It is very hard. It is true. We want the world to know that the Russian soldiers are making safari out of Ukrainian children. They are killing and raping women, and they are killing young men so that they won't be able to fight against them. We are very grateful to those who deliver the truth. Please do not stop. Do not get used to this war. Speak the truth. And that's why we're here in Ukraine, to bear witness, to bring you that truth, especially amidst the Kremlin lies, not just from where I'm standing here in Lviv, but from our CNN teams across the entire country bringing you the story. Let's bring in CNN's Fred Pleitkin now, who was in Borodyanka earlier today. He's now live in Kiev for us. And Fred, how does the damage you saw there today compare to what you've seen 
in other Ukrainian cities, such as Bucha, that had been attacked by the Russians. Well, you know what, uh, Jake, the damage in Bordyanka, I would say, is even a lot worse than it is in Bucha. Uh, of course, Bucha was uh, the place where so many people were killed in the streets. Uh, people were also apparently executed uh, in a basement there, which we witnessed as well. But one of the things that we learned today, we took a trip uh, from here all the way to Bordyanka. We had to go through several towns and villages along the way. And there is literally a swath of death and destruction uh, when you make your way from here to Bordyanka and most probably also further up towards the border with Belarus. Every single village that we went through uh, had destroyed buildings. Almost everyone also had destroyed Russian tanks as well. And we did also in several other towns see people collect bodies there as well. Borodyanka, though, is one of those places that was hit extremely hard. And I want to warn our viewers, what you're about to see is very graphic and very disturbing. In the war that Russia has unleashed against Ukraine, few places have suffered more than Borodyanka. Occupied by Vladimir Putin's troops since late February, recently taken back by Ukraine's army. Bordyanka was held by the Russians for a very long time. And just to give you an idea about the scale of the destruction, you have houses like these that were completely destroyed. But if we look over here, you can see that even large residential buildings have been flattened. This entire building was flattened. It was connected with this one before, but now there's absolutely nothing left of it. And the Russians made sure to show they owned this town, painting the letter V on occupied buildings, even defacing Borodyanka's city administration. V is the letter the Russians used to help identify their forces that invaded this part of Ukraine. Oksana Kostichenko and her husband just returned here and found Russian soldiers had been staying in their house. She says they ransacked the place. Alcohol is everywhere, she says. Empty bottles in the hallway under things. They smoked a lot, put out cigarettes on the table. They also showed us the corpse of a man they found in their backyard. His hands and feet tied, severe bruises on his body, a shell casing still nearby. Russia claims its forces don't target civilians, calling reports of atrocities fake and provocations. But these body collectors are the ones who have to remove the carnage Russia's military leaves in its wake. In a span of less than an hour, they found a person gunned down while riding a bicycle, a body burned beyond recognition, and a man still stuck in his car, gunned down with bullet holes in his head and chest. He was believed to be transporting medical supplies now strewn near this road. The most awful thing is, those are not soldiers laying there, just people, innocent people, Gennady says. For no reason, I ask. Yes, for no reason. Killed and tortured for no reason, he says. The road from Kiev to Borodyanka is lined with villages heavily damaged after Russia's occupation destroyed tanks and armored vehicles left behind, but also indications of just how much firepower they unleashed on this area. The Russians say this is a special operation, not a war, and that they don't harm civilians. But look how much ammunition they left behind simply in this one single firing position here. This is ammunition for heavy weapons with devastating effects on civilian areas. That devastation cuts through the towns and villages north of Kiev, where the number of dead continues to rise. Now that Vladimir Putin's armies have withdrawn, Ukraine's leaders still believe many more bodies could be buried beneath the rubble. 
And of course, this is not a singular case, Jake. In fact, the Ukrainian authorities, of course, are coming now through town and town that's being uh, left by the Russians as they moved out of here. And they fear that a lot more of this to come, that a lot more bodies are going to be discovered. And you know what we're seeing when we move through these areas, it seems as though on the part of the Russian military, there seemed to be a complete lack of respect for the Ukrainian state, for Ukrainian civilians, and also on the part of the Russian leadership, a complete lack of respect for its own soldiers, considering they're still saying that this was an orderly withdrawal and this was always the plan. However, if that was the plan, it shows they have no regard whatsoever for their own troops because a lot of them were incinerated in their vehicles and many bodies not even recovered. Jake. CNN's Fred Plaikin live for us in Kiev. Thank you so much. Uh, joining us now in Lviv is CNN Ch- Chief International Correspondent Clarissa Ward. Uh, and Clarissa, the, the images we're seeing uh, from Bucha, not to mention, mention uh, Borodyanka that, that uh, Fred just uh, brought us today, are, they're, they're horrific. And of course, the big fear is there's much worse out there in the parts of the country that are still controlled uh, by the Russians. We spoke with a man today who has friends in the army. He said he's, he's hearing from his soldier friends that Mariupol, you can't even believe how, how horrible the crimes are there. And I think there is this sense of dread now that what we're seeing in Bucha and Borodyanka and in these Kiev suburbs, it's just the tip of the iceberg. Because this is the first time we've been able to look at the sort of calculated brutality of the Russians in areas that have been under their control. And there are so many others around the country that we just haven't really been able to see yet. You brought up Mariupol, more than 100,000 people trapped there. No water, no electricity, constant bombardment, constant shelling, no humanitarian aid, corpses littering the streets, reports of women being raped. I mean, we are only just starting to get a sense of how ugly things are in many of these areas. And honestly, Jake, it's utterly terrifying. It is. And it's just anybody who heard the, the sound coming from over there, uh, there are regular um, air raid sirens. That was the all clear that we were just being told that everything was OK. Um, so that's what that was. So, uh, Clarissa, you, you've obviously reported um, the front lines too many places to name, but I'll start with a few. Afghanistan, Syria, Yemen, Iraq. Uh, how does what we're seeing here compare with what you've seen elsewhere? I think when you look at executions of civilians in any war zone, it makes your blood run cold because it is a very different thing to kill someone with a bomb, with an airstrike, with a missile, even combat, with shelling. Even. Yeah. Yes, because there is distance. Yeah. There, it, there is a sort of you can divorce yourself from the impact, the humanitarian toll of what it is that you're doing. When you stand in front of someone in cold blood and look into their eyes and kill them, that speaks to a level of depravity, which is utterly petrifying, even in the context of war. And it also speaks to a deep state of dehumanization and hatred, which is such an ominous harbinger of things to come, because it shows that this war is even uglier and even darker than I think we had dared to imagine. And of course, this comes after years and years of Kremlin propaganda about how evil the Ukrainian people are. It is that attempt to dehumanize uh, the people of Ukraine uh, that at least partly explains how these Russian soldiers are able to commit. I'm not excusing anything. Please understand that. But it's been years of of indoctrinating Russians to hate Ukrainians that leads to the crimes we're seeing. And it's also this What is so powerful about Russian disinformation is it's not just trying to make you believe their narrative. 
it's simply bombarding you with so many different narratives. When we look at how they're false reacting to the pat- scenes, patently false, patently ones, false yeah. but there are so many of them that most ordinary people kind of put their hands up and say, I don't know what to believe anymore. Right. You stop believing in the very possibility that truth exists, that there is black and white, that there is good and evil. It's a profoundly deep form of cynicism, but what it does is it makes people uniquely vulnerable to all forms of totalitarianism because they're basically surrendering and saying, I don't even know what's true anymore. And that's why you're seeing people around the world, not just in Russia, actually questioning what happened in Bucha? When you have dozens of journalists seeing these bodies for themselves, the Filming UN them. today saying they've got their hands tied behind their backs, right. and the Russians are putting out propaganda saying, "Oh, they're actors staging." It doesn't even make sense, right. but it doesn't need to make sense. It's just about bombarding the sort of airwaves with various nonsensical theories that completely overwhelm people. It's exactly what George Orwell was warning about decades ago. Clarissa Ward, thank you so much. Uh, appreciate it. Coming up next, CNN's rare access to Ukrainian fighters who bravely went toe-to-toe with Russian forces. Find out how this war has changed their lives forever. Plus, ready to defend their own, the Ukrainian soccer club owner I met today who says he's ready to change his profession from soccer club owner to sniper. See the startling moment that happened in the middle of our conversation. Stay with us. Staying in our world lead, the toll of Putin's barbaric war is vast and growing. The United Nations estimates at least 1,400 Ukrainian civilians have been killed, with more than 2,100 injured. Doctors and nurses are, of course, suffering as well. CNN's Ivan Watson was granted unique access to a Ukrainian hospital treating some of the thousands of military service members who have been wounded in Russia's brutal attack. We want to warn you, some of the images we're about to show you are quite disturbing. Shattered bodies in the intensive care unit of a Ukrainian hospital. Men and women from the Ukrainian military whose war wounds are so catastrophic they need machines to breathe. These deeply uncomfortable images, a glimpse of the physical toll this conflict is taking on both soldiers and civilians. The general director of the hospital says that after the first couple of days of this new war, at least 30 medical personnel resigned because of just the trauma of seeing these kinds of injuries up close. A soldier named Yuri wants to communicate. He can't speak because he's still on a ventilator. He has regained consciousness after 11 days in a coma. We won't identify him because doctors say his family does not yet know of his injuries. He has one child, Malchik. A daughter, he signals, 13 years old. Writing in my notebook, Yuri tells me he's been in the military for two years. The doctors say that he has a very good chance of surviving very serious shrapnel injuries to his body. We were given permission to film here, provided we not name the hospital nor the city that we're in. And that's because the Ukrainian authorities fear that that information could lead to the Russian military directly targeting this hospital. In every room here, there's a patient whose bones and tissues have been ripped apart by flying metal. Vladimir is a volunteer. He signed up on the second day of this war in 2022. 
This electrician-turned-volunteer soldier comes from the Russian-speaking city of Kharkiv. Three days ago, a battle left him with two broken arms and wounds to the stomach. Vladimir says his sister lives in Russia and he no longer communicates with her. I asked why. He said that she believes that the Ukrainians are enemies. This is a family that is split apart by this war and different narratives of who started it. Vladimir and the soldier with a fresh amputation lying next to him both insist that only force can stop Russia's war on this country. Down the hall, I meet a young civilian, also horrifically wounded. 21. Dima is 21 years old. Where, where are you from? Dima is a recent university graduate, photographed here with his mother, Natasha. My mother died when this happened to me, he says, adding, I've cried it off already. I'm calmer now. He says on the night of March 9th, he and his mother were hiding in the bathroom of a two-story house in the center of Mariupol when they heard warplanes overhead bombing the neighborhood. Mother and son were hiding in the bathroom shortly before 1 a.m., he says, when the bomb hit the house. When he woke up, his legs were gone. He never saw his mother again. During my visit, a friend gives Dima a phone. This is the first time he's seeing the building where he and his mother were sheltering when they were hit. The red car here that is destroyed in front of the ruined building was his mother's car. Of course I get angry. I get sad. I get depressed at times, but I can't lose my cool. Because those who did this to me, they probably want me to sit here crying and weeping. Don't let the silence in these halls fool you. There is deep, seething anger in this hospital at the country that launched this unprovoked war on Ukraine. Now, Jake, there's a good reason why the authorities didn't want this hospital named or its location publicized. In fact, 85 good reasons. According to the United Nations, there have been 85 attacks on health facilities in this country since Russia invaded Ukraine on February 24th. That's more than one attack a day. And at least 72 people have been killed in those attacks, the United Nations says. Meanwhile, Doctors Without Borders says in the last two days, there have been three strikes on hospitals in the southern city of Mykolaiv. And a Doctors Without Borders team witnessed one of those Russian strikes, which they say they believe could have been carried out by cluster bombs, and the MSF team says they saw at least one person killed in that attack. Jake? Ivan Watson, thank you so much. Let's discuss all of this with a member of the Ukrainian parliament. With Here with us right now is Yevhenia Kravchuk. Um, thank you so much uh, for being here. Uh, Watching, watching Ivan's report is, is upsetting enough for me as an American, uh, not a Ukrainian. When you see this, these reports of devastation, of Russians targeting civilians, killing civilians, millions displaced, thousands killed, how do you cope? Well, the only thing I can think of is how to stop this. And the only way how to stop it 
is to kick out Russians from our land. Because you've seen these uh, videos in Bucha, what they did when they occupied the territories. Well, pretty much we can see, we probably will see something like that in those territories they, they do hold. Um, uh, th th and they got it in, in, since February. So Mariupol, you know, is a mass graveyard. And we can't even get there. You showed these numbers that you are, the United Nations say about the killed civilians, but it's much, much more. I mean, right. only in Mariupol, uh, local councils say it's uh, more than 5,000 of civilians dead and we can't even get there to, you know, to count, to, to, to find out uh, what's going on there. So uh, the only way is uh, to win at the battlefield because, you know, no phone calls to put in, no statements, no tweets, no Facebook posts cannot, you know, stop him. He should be stopped by force. Yeah. So your, your husband's the head of a police department in the in the Kiev uh, region. Um, what is what are he and his colleagues going through as they try to protect the people of that area? Well, uh, right now, um, a lot of policemen from other districts that were not affected, uh, they are taken to these uh, northern parts and they work uh, there. They, they um, asked to have their forensic uh, experts to uh, to put every you know documentation on these war crimes uh, because we need an international tribunal afterwards to make sure that everyone who killed people will be punished because this evil cannot just go unpunished you know unless you know we want our world just to go on jeopardy and you know every country that has uh, 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 you know becomes a terrorist uh, they can do whatever in the world go to other countries kill everyone so we need to punish those that's why they are uh, putting this forensic um, evidence and he says that uh, there are not enough places in the morgues to put all these bodies so they need these refrigerators to you know, to, to yeah. put bodies in. Earlier, earlier in the show, uh, we showed a, a woman that we met uh, in Lviv earlier today whose husband works uh, in the police around uh, Kiev. And as she says, every day they talk and he tells her these horrible stories of, of things that they're finding, the, the graves, the torture, the rapes. Um, your husband must be sharing similar stories. Yes, we talk every day. We have, I haven't seen him for, for 40 days. I hope to maybe to, to see him uh, next week since the, the whole Kiev Oblast has been uh, liberated. Yes, and, and there are horrible stories. I mean, uh, shot children, like six years old children that was shot with a bullet. Uh, when the family tried to escape, you know, basically just to save their lives. And we do have uh, a lot of evidence about um, mass uh, rapings of women. And uh, um, th these, uh, um, you know, th th these crimes will be uh, very underreported because women are afraid to talk about. They, you know, afraid to be stigmatized. Uh, some of the women, you know, probably will talk, I don't know, in 10 years. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's horrible. And, uh, and, and sort of, you know, Russians try to put this as a new normality. I mean, they go on on the United Nations Defense Council, uh, Council which, you know, have been completely useless because right. Russia would put better on everything they do. And they sort of uh, lie to the face of the whole world. Uh, and, you know, it's unbelievable. And you have this satellite evidence from, uh, you know, that these bodies were there since May, um, March uh, 10th. Yeah, the, the Bucha uh, corpses that the Russians claimed only 
appeared after they left when, as you as you know, through satellite events, they were satellite. there ahead of time. And I mean, these bodies, I mean, they, they've been staying there for, for two weeks or three weeks. Yeah. Uh, Yevhenia uh, uh, Kravchuk, Member of Parliament for Ukraine, thank you so much for thank being you. with us today. We appreciate it. In the streets here in Lviv, life sometimes appears normal. Businesses can be open. Many people are trying to go about their daily lives, but there are constant and clear reminders that war is ongoing. And we learned that today when we visited a local soccer club that takes in internally displaced families. That's next. Stay with us. In our world lead, more than 11 million Ukrainians, 11 million, have been forced to leave their homes since Putin's brutal assault on their country began. The United Nations says more than 4 million have fled the country, and at least 7 million are internally displaced. Many of those internally displaced individuals have ended up here in the western city of Lviv, where I am right now. Today, my team and I visited a minor league soccer club where the owner has been opening his doors to his new home team, Ukrainian families that he's desperately hoping to protect. Under the watchful eye of this lion, a local soccer team mascot, three-year-old Yana, exhausted, finally sleeps. Yana has fled Donetsk with her mother and big sister, her aunt and cousins. It is no longer safe for her there. But here in Lviv, residents like Ukrainians across the country are opening their homes and businesses to fellow citizens. Vulnerable families fleeing their homes, seeking refuge wherever they can find it, including for this three-year-old girl and this four-year-old girl at this soccer club in Lviv. The Galician Lions are a minor league soccer club. Their fierce fighting spirit so far more successful off the field than on. Team executives say their offices, emblazoned with lion logos, has offered a resting place for hundreds of refugee families such as this one, stopping in on their way to the border into Poland. It must be very difficult, difficult to be a mother and protect your children at a time like this when there are horrible things happening. Stop. Yes, it is both physically and psychologically difficult. Anatasia tells us she was a pharmacist's assistant before the war. Her sister-in-law, Katya, an accountant. Their husbands remain back east as their journeys likely continue soon, out of the country. Now they say they are open to any job and any safe way of life for their family. I was also a bookkeeper, worked at a company. I'm also ready to take any job. We left because of our children. We left our town because we were afraid of their psychological state. We have a war there, and we were very scared. Their oldest children, 11-year-old Yegor and 9-year-old Valaria, seem sad and confused. How was the journey? It was very long, but I'm very happy now that we are in a safe place. What do you miss the most? I miss my grandmother and I would like to be back in my town because here everything looks very unfamiliar to me, unknown. It must be tough being a kid and having to go through all this. A bit. They are, after all, only 11 and 9, but they find themselves having to comfort their much younger siblings. Yegor, what do you tell your little sister in the other room when she gets worried? I tell her everything is going to be fine and that it will end soon. 
Relatively, these children are lucky. Thousands of Ukrainians, including the nation's youngest, have been killed in Putin's brutal war. Innocent civilians murdered in their hometowns, in their homes, many more in danger of being next. And that is what motivates soccer club owner Oleg Smalichuk. I want to change my profession. I bought a rifle. I want to become a sniper. I believe after what we have seen, what happened in Bucha, the number has increased tenfold of people like me who want to join. He wants to join the Ukrainian military, he says, and go to the front lines. I definitely want to go where I can avenge our children. Upstairs, he began to show me the sniper rifle and ammunition he purchased. And as if we needed any more evidence of the threat the people of Ukraine find themselves under, constantly, the air raid siren went off while we were speaking. Oleg did not stop and instead continued loading the bullets. Ready to go to war for the children under the Ukrainian flag and under the watchful eye of the Galatian lions. The club owner also told me it's not just Putin's fault. He also blames former German Chancellor Angela Merkel. He thinks Germany's reluctance to completely shut off Russian gas imports is at least partly to blame for the ongoing war. Those would be the sanctions, of course, that Putin probably fears the most, he says. Can Western powers do more to save lives here in Ukraine? My next guest says yes and has a list of actions he thinks NATO can take right now, and he'll be joining me coming up. Stay with us. Continuing with our world lead here in Ukraine, in addition to the Russian atrocities being witnessed near Kyiv, there is much more destruction all over the country, of course. Take a look at this drone footage from over the weekend in the southern Ukrainian city of Mariupol. It's now a gray wasteland of broken, shattered, burned out buildings. And yet Mariupol's mayor said Monday that more than 100,000 Ukrainians remain trapped in that city with no light, no water, no food, no medicine. Trapped that way for more than a month. Joining us from Kiev now to talk about the bigger picture of what's happening in Ukraine is Daniel Bilak. He's the former chief investment advisor for the prime minister. Uh, and Daniel, thanks so much for joining us. Um, you, you were born in Canada, but worked in and have family in Ukraine. And now you volunteered as a member of Ukraine's territorial defense forces. Tell us what you're seeing. Well, Jake, I mean, I think that thanks for having me on your show. Uh, I mean, we've all been seeing these just absolutely ghastly, uh, horrific images coming out of out of Bucha, uh, incomprehensible uh, barbarism, uh, you know, that that had been conducted by, you know, the butchers, the butchers of Bucha, who are basically, you know, the spawn of the Satan in 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 the Kremlin. I mean, I don't know how else you can des- describe it. But but it's not just that. I mean, this is the way the Russian army has always fought wars. This isn't anything new. If you talk to Syrians, Afghanis, uh, uh, anybody who was behind uh, uh, Russian lines in World War II, this 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 is just true to form. Um, the Russian army doesn't know how to fight. Uh, it does. Russian army doesn't want to fight. And frankly, the Ukrainian army has been winning the, the war on the ground. We've been we've been taking it to them. We drove them out of Kiev. And, um, you know, the, 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 the bigger issue is that we now have to uh, deal with something that's going to be happening big time in in the Donbass. We are going to see a battle uh, for the country, uh, for Europe, for freedom, for democracy, uh, everything that 
the Europe and the European and, and NATO believes in uh, coming up in eastern Ukraine. Uh, you can just go your viewers yeah. can go on to CNN and 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 see General Clark talk about the force on force uh, battle that's going to, that it, that is looming. Something he said we haven't seen since World War Two. And, you know, it's it's I have a real big question. Like, what does NATO want as the outcome of this war? Because I listen to the president, right. I listen to the foreign minister, the defense minister, and we're not seeming to get all the things that we that we that we need. And I'm really hoping NATO isn't playing quid well, what pro you, quo with Ukraine on this. What what do you need that you're not getting that has already been promised? Because obviously NATO countries, the United States have talked about uh, billions of dollars in military aid, uh, economic aid, humanitarian aid. Is it just that it's not getting there quickly enough? Well, look, I, I don't have all the details, but I've seen the statistics. I mean, the United States spent $4 billion a year uh, equipping uh, the Iraqi army, and we were, we've were we been given, I think, $800 million, uh, uh, for this year. Um, and when you look at the scale of the uh, of the job ahead of us, we're going through javelins in in five days that we're being given for a month. So our, our you know we're being given something that is being procured by Pentagon uh, procurement agents uh, that doesn't seem to correspond to what the Ukrainians are are asking for. But 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 it, but it's not just that. I mean you know as as a Canadian uh, and somebody who's raised in a NATO country. You know, if, if I'm sitting here wondering about the courage of the convictions of NATO countries, I can only imagine what President Putin thinks uh, sitting uh, sitting in his lair in his bunker in, in Moscow. He sees weakness, he sees fecklessness, he sees dithering. And all that does is enable him. I mean, and NATO is essentially could yeah. be uh, operating as a, as a Putin enabler. And instead of avoiding World War III, you may be just speeding it up. And, you know, I cannot for the huh. life of me understand why NATO troops got the 82nd Airborne Division, one of the finest fighting forces in the world sitting in Poland, can't come to Ukraine and create a humanitarian corridor. That would send a message. You know, why aren't NATO warships in the Black Sea? You have mines sown by the Russians floating onto the shores of NATO countries, Romania, Bulgaria and Turkey. Why aren't NATO warships in the Black Sea, international territorial waters, sending a message? You know, if the only thing Putin understands is force. You cannot negotiate any type of compromise or he sees as a form of weakness. And he'll just double down and do more. I mean, I'm not just making this up. He, he, he telegraphs everything perfectly. You know, and, and uh, President, uh, uh, General Clark and the president of Lithuania said uh, yesterday that, uh, look, the only way to avoid World War III, the only way is to stop Putin in Ukraine. So NATO needs to do this for its own sake. And, you know, look, we've given the world a lesson yeah. in freedom. And freedom is not free. And if, uh, uh, you know, if, if, if you don't, you know, look to, if you don't try to, to stand on your, on your, and die on your feet and live on your knees, then, you know, you don't have a lot to live for. And look, we have almost Daniel all Bellack, the ingredients the, the, we need to win. Sorry. Yeah. And you just and you just need the aid. You just you just need need more. We hear you. Well, loud we have and clear. a professional army. Billick, we, uh, have a com we have a. Right. I'm sorry. We're running out of time. Daniel Billick, thank you so much uh, for your time and for your views. Uh, we'll have you back on the show soon. We're going to have more from Lviv here coming up. Plus, in Washington, D.C. today, former President Barack Obama's first trip back to the White House since he left office. Stay with us.
We have much more ahead uh, from here in Ukraine, but let's take a quick break for our politics lead. Former President Barack Obama returned to the White House this afternoon to celebrate his administration's signature achievement, the Affordable Care Act, better known as Obamacare. It looked and sounded like old times. Thank you. Vice President Biden. Vice President. (laughs) That was a joke. Phil Mattingly was there. Uh, Phil, what else did the former president have to say? Not totally sure that was a joke, or at least not an intentional one. Look, the president was making clear through the focus on Obamacare that there are very real things that take time, struggles even, but it's worth it. Take a listen. Progress feels way too slow. But what the Affordable Care Act shows is that you are driven by the core idea that together we can improve the lives of this generation and the next. And if you're persistent, if you stay with it and are willing to work through the obstacles and the criticism and continually improve where you fall short, you can make America better. Jake, it seemed like a not so subtle uh, flick. And I think what a lot of Democrats currently are frustrated with, some of the president's key agenda items are still stalled. And there's a lot of concern about those midterm elections. President B- Obama was asked about the midterm elections, what the message should be. And he responded, we've got a story to tell, Jake. We've just got to tell it. Jake. Phil Manningly at the White House for us. Thanks so much. Coming up, captured but not killed. CNN's exclusive access to Ukrainians who had been Russian prisoners of war, but are now back on the right side in Ukraine. The physical and mental abuse, they say the Russians inflicted upon them. That's next. This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome back to this special broadcast of The Lead, live from Western Ukraine. I'm Jake Tapper. I'm standing on a rooftop looking out on Lviv on day 41 of Russia's brutal invasion of Ukraine. We begin this hour with more gruesome images of alleged war crimes and a passionate yet angry message from Ukraine's leader. Today, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky went into graphic detail to the United Nations Security Council. He demanded accountability. He tried to force world leaders to confront the reality that they have not stopped Putin nor his troops from slaughtering innocent Ukrainian civilians. Civilians were crushed by tanks while sitting in their cars in the middle of the road, just for their pleasure. They cut off limbs, slashed their throats, women raped and killed in front of their children. Their tongues were pulled out only because the aggressor did not hear what they wanted to hear from them. This is no different from other terrorists. The Kremlin has been lying for months about its attack on Ukraine, and they continue to deny these claims, calling them another, quote, elaborate hoax by the international community. Today in Lviv, we met a number of internally displaced Ukrainians. These are citizens, millions of them, who have been forced to flee their homes in eastern Ukraine and central Ukraine and northern Ukraine and southern Ukraine to come here to the western part. Two women we met in the central square had a message and a plea. The war in Ukraine is real, and it is true that people are being killed. It is very hard, 
It is true. We want the world to know that the Russian soldiers are making safari out of Ukrainian children. They are killing and raping women, and they are killing young men so that they won't be able to fight against them. We are very grateful to those who deliver the truth. Please do not stop. Do not get used to this war. Speak the truth. That is why we are here, to bear witness, to speak the truth. Let's bring in CNN chief international anchor, Christiane Amanpour, live. She's about 300 miles east of here. She's in the capital of Kiev. And Christiane, the United Nations says at least 1,400 Ukrainian civilians have been killed since the war began. At least 2,100 have been wounded. Uh, Ukrainians say the number is far higher than that. Uh, your, your team got exclusive access to dozens of Ukrainian soldiers today, former prisoners of war, now back with the Ukrainian army because of a prisoner swap. Um, tell us what they describe. And, and astoundingly, is it true they want to go right back into fighting? Well, they do want to go back into fighting, Jake. And that woman who you just spoke to, please don't get used to this war. Honestly, it's the most powerful thing I've heard in a long time because one possibly could. And yet here we are in, in Kyiv and all the outskirts around Kyiv that have been liberated are showing the full and absolute horror of what the Russians have left behind. And there's a possibility that the more you know, these troops move back or are regrouped or whatever, you'll find more of this as this war continues. So we did have access to the prisoners of war. There's some 86 or so of them who were actually freed in a prisoner of war exchange. And this is one of the decent things that has come out of at least some of the ongoing chats between the uh, ongoing negotiations between the Russians and the Ukrainians. Still, the local prosecutor says that the Russian prisoners have, or rather Russian captors, have in fact broken the, the Geneva Conventions in the way they treated these now former prisoners. Take a listen. Back home and free, these former Ukrainian prisoners of war, once held by Russian forces, are greeted by friends and colleagues in Kyiv. Freedom for now is the drag of a cigarette, walking on home turf, even if that means using crutches. Bags of food are handed out to the more than 80 former Ukrainian POWs released in a prisoner exchange with Russia. It's a welcome meal and a moment to decompress and reflect on what many here say was the physical and mental abuse they endured in Russian custody. One POW named Gleb says he was captured nearly a month ago while evacuating civilians. He was beaten by Russian soldiers. They hit me in the face with machine gun butts and kicked me. My front teeth were also chipped. Anya and Dasha were in the same unit. It was shelled by Russian troops, who they say tried to break them, making them shout glory to Russia, and they shaved their heads telling them that it was for hygiene purposes. Maybe they were trying to break our spirit in some way. It was a shock. But then we're strong girls, you know. Dimitro says he was taken by Russian soldiers in Mariupol and suffered daily beatings during his captivity. They would beat us five to six times a day for nothing. They would just take us into the hallway and beat us up. It's an ordeal and it will take time to heal, both mentally and physically. Though many say they want to go back to their units and continue fighting. But before that, Gleb shows us a slip of paper. 
with what he says are the phone numbers of loved ones of prisoners still held captive by the Russians. He says he will tell the families they are still alive and not to give up hope. So, Jay, these people are really what stood between Russian takeover of this nation and the way that they have pushed them back and not allowed the Russians to completely occupy this nation. They do want to go back to fight. A lot of them, though, are back in their units now. They went back to their units and they will also be getting mental health care. Jake? All right, Christian, I'm in poor with that important report. As usual, live from Kiev for us. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Meanwhile, Russia appears to be repositioning its troops for what is anticipated to be a major assault on the southern and eastern regions of Ukraine. Part of the Russian strategy includes attacking cities to prevent Ukrainian forces from traveling to the area. CNN's Ed Lavendera is live in Ukraine's strategic port city of Odessa. Ed, not far from you in Mariupol, the mayor says more than 100,000 Ukrainians are, are still trying to evacuate the city. What's happening with that evacuation with the convoys? Well, according to President Zelensky here in Ukraine, Russian forces are essentially blocking any attempts for humanitarian organizations to get into Mariupol to help evacuate the 100,000 people that need to be saved. This is a city, Jake, that uh, people have said uh, they are running out of adjectives to describe how horrific the scene is there, that residents are living like mice underground for safety reasons. Um, there have been a repeated attempts day after day during the course of the last week to open up humanitarian corridors into that city. The International Committee of the Red Cross has tried since Saturday to get in. Uh, they have not been able to. In fact, one of their teams was detained um, by Russian forces, and they've been released since. But the only way out, Jake, right now is for a civilian to get into a car and to drive to the nearest city, which I believe is like 30, 40 miles away. Um, and if you've spent any time talking to Ukrainians who've have escaped these hardest hit areas where they've seen the worst of war, driving in your own personal car through Russian forces is a, a death sentence in many cases. So, you know, the concern here is that uh, they desperately need to reach these people for food and water and medical attention. Uh, Zelensky says that uh, in the last week, they've only about 2,000 people have been able to escape that city. So the amount of uh, help that is needed there is just monumental. Ed Levandera in Odessa, Ukraine. Thank you. Please stay safe, my friend. Uh, let's bring in CNN senior international correspondent Matthew Chance from London. Uh, and Matthew, Russia claims that, and look, we need to point out, obviously, the Kremlin lies all the time. They claim they weren't going to attack Ukraine to begin with, but they claim the brutality in Bucha. It's all a hoax. It's an effort to denigrate the, the Russian army. There is satellite imagery proving that those bodies had been in the streets for weeks when the town was still under Russian control. How does the Kremlin explain this? Oh, well, I mean, they, they use that tried and tested tactic, Jake. You know, with, you referred to just that we've seen them use whenever they're accused of malign activity. It is categorical denial. And that's been true whether it comes to the killing of civilians in Syria whether it's the poisoning of dissidents or the killing of dissidents overseas, whatever, meddling in elections in the United States, whatever it is, whatever the allegation, the Russian standard defense is to just say it wasn't us, 
It's just not true. And that's exactly the tactic that they've deployed this time, confronted with this photographic evidence that there are bodies in the streets back on March the 18th, when Butcher, that, that town on the northern outskirts of, of the Ukrainian capital, was in the control of the Russian forces. We can see it with our own eyes. There are bodies strewn across the main road. The Russians are saying, the Kremlin is saying this, is that, look, you know, this is a fake attack. It was set up after Russian troops left. And no amount of photographic evidence that is presented that contradicts that is going to change uh, the Kremlin's point of view. There was one example of a top Russian uh, state television anchor sort of basically making a joke about it. I, I think it was a joke anyway, because he was saying that, look, this must have been a British uh, special operation, this uh, butcher massacre, because the word butcher, the town in, in, in northern north of Kiev, is the same as the word butcher in English. And that's too much of a coincidence, he said, for this not to be a British operation. I mean, he didn't even, he didn't even crack a smile when he said it. So I'm not sure it was a, whether it was a joke or not. But it's the kind of level of cynicism that we are seeing at the moment in Russia when it is confronted with these, you know, brutal, appalling facts about what is being seen on the ground uh, when Russian forces leave and leave behind them in their wake this, you know... Uh, this terrible sort of, you know, uh, these terrible atrocities, for, for want of another word, you know, behind them, Jake. Several European countries, including uh, Italy, France, Germany, Denmark, um, expelled Russian dim diplomats after seeing these images from Bucha. The Kremlin is saying this is going to lead, quote, inevitably lead to retaliatory steps, unquote. What, what does that look like? Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, when they talk about retaliatory steps, they're talking about, I suppose, reciprocal expulsions of, of diplomats. I mean, again, this is a, a pattern that I've witnessed in Russia over the past 20 years since I've been reporting it. Whenever there are expulsions of, of, of diplomats of, of Russia for various reasons, they almost without fail respond in kind and, and, and you, know, um, you know, expel an equal number of diplomats from that country. I mean, the, the problem... That this, and when the Kremlin has said this actually, is, is that the problem with expelling each other's diplomats is that you further narrow down the opportunities and the avenues for any kind of sort of peace talks, any kind of negotiations that are going to sort of bring this horrible situation in Ukraine to some kind of quick and early peaceful uh, resolution. That is looking increasingly unlikely now. And actually, the president of, of Ukraine, Volodymyr Zelensky, said it himself. It's very difficult, he said, to talk to these people after we have witnessed, and I'm paraphrasing him here, witnessed what they have done to Ukrainians on the ground uh, in the country, Jay. Matthew Chance in London for us. Thank you so much. Today, the top military officer in the United States called Russia's invasion, quote, the greatest threat to peace in the world in decades. Something else he said could affect how long U.S. troops remain in Eastern Europe. We'll tell you that next. Plus, the hypersonic missile test that the U.S. initially tried to keep quiet, but plans were announced today to expand this military capability. Stay with us. Staying in our world lead, shocking new videos show the extent of the devastation on the Ukrainian city of Borodyanka, just outside Kyiv, the regional governor says the city has been almost destroyed entirely. 
amid fears the death toll there could be higher than the death toll in Bucha. Similar destruction has been seen throughout Ukraine as Putin's forces withdraw from some occupied areas earlier today. This is how the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley, described Russia's invasion. We are witness to the greatest threat to peace and security of Europe and perhaps the world in my 42 years of service in uniform. The Russian invasion of Ukraine is threatening to undermine not only European peace and stability, but global peace and stability that my parents and a generation of Americans fought so hard to defend. Let's discuss with the former commander of U.S. and NATO forces in Afghanistan, U.S. Central Command, and former CIA Director General David Petraeus. General, uh, it's good to see you as always. So you heard General Milley there saying the world is becoming more unstable. The risk of significant international conflict is only growing. Is this how you see it as well? I do. This is not hyperbole. Again, keep in mind that we faced off for many decades uh, across the Iron Curtain, the inner German border, and they never attacked. Uh, Putin has actually attacked. He has invaded uh, a a neighboring country, something, again, that we sought to deter for so many decades and now has actually materialized. And of course, it was unprovoked. So, yeah, I think this is very, very dangerous. Uh, It cannot become the new norm. Uh, This has to be a complete outlier. This cannot happen again. And of course, NATO is taking a lot of actions to ensure that there will not be any temptation, uh, that there will be no lack of perception of the readiness of NATO to respond however necessary uh, when it comes to the defense and really the deterrence of Russian aggression against any of the NATO members. General Milley also told lawmakers today uh, in that spirit that you just talked about, the deterrence of NATO, uh, that Milley would support permanent bases in Eastern Europe, that U.S. forces would rotate through to defer any further uh, Russian aggression in in the region. Do you agree with that? Would that mean U.S. troops would be stationed in Eastern Europe indefinitely? Well, we have already had small contingents in each of the three Baltic states. We have a contingent that's been in Poland for some time. Now you'd presumably add to it uh, Romania, uh, Slovakia, and Hungary, uh, perhaps some others. Uh, So yeah, I certainly would. Uh, And again, this has been a long time in coming. There's been a lot of work on rail systems and so forth to get forces from Western Europe, which is where they always traditionally were, out to the east in time of a crisis. I think it's time to station them out there permanently, or at least have the bases be permanent, even if forces rotate through them, which is really what has been happening in Poland now for a couple of years. You remember we had no tanks at all in Europe for a while. They went back a a few years ago, and obviously now there's a lot more there already just with the forces that have been sent. And I'm sure that over time we will solidify that footprint uh, and make sure that it is everything that is necessary to deter action uh, by Russia. Let's put a map up of uh, of Ukraine uh, for the general. And if you could if you could tell us, give us a status report of where you think the battle uh, has been and where it is going right now. Well, it's a wonderful question, Jake, because really, for the first time in a number of weeks, you see something that is really dynamic. Uh, Ukraine has won the Battle of Kiev. Russian forces literally withdrawing from Uh, the north and northwest, as well as from the east of Kyiv. And of course, now we're seeing these cities that have been devastated, these villages, uh, while the Russians occupied them. 
Uh, they've won the battles of Chernihiv. That's way up in the north. Uh, also of Sumy in the northeast. That's another location. Russians are pulling back from those locations. Uh, they've probably won down in the southwest, uh, Battle of Mykolaiv, which is the city that's midway to Crimea, uh, or midway from Crimea uh, to the major port of Odessa. And now the Russians are refocusing everything on what they can do coming in from the east, uh, south of Kharkiv, uh, and then also pushing out of Crimea and the Donbass area. Uh, you see Mariupol on the map there. That is the encircled city that has become the Ukrainian uh, uh, Alamo, if you will. It's fighting to the last defender, occupying a number of Russian battalions. When those are freed up, ultimately, they will be able to focus north and try to link up with those forces that are coming in there from the east. You see that red blob above the yellow. The yellow is the separatist-controlled area of Donetsk and Luhansk oblasts. The Russians want to take all the remaining part of those two oblasts, those provinces, and they'd really like to trap the Ukrainian forces that are defending against the separatists pushing out from the southeast. So we're going to see a really climactic uh, set of battles here. It's a race. The Russians have pulled forces again out of Kiev and these other cities. They're going to reconstitute them, replace the personnel that have been lost and seriously wounded, replace the damaged and destroyed equipment and then try to bring it around through uh, Belarus and then down along the eastern uh, border of Ukraine with Russia and then bring them in from the east to reinforce the hard-fought gains that have been achieved and that are worrisome. And in the meantime, Ukraine, of course, is doing the same. They're taking forces that were battling to defend Kyiv and kept the Russians out of the main city, uh, and they're going to have to push them hundreds of miles to the south and ensure their logistics. And there's another race going on, of course, and that is as the NATO nations and the U.S. try to provide everything we can as quickly as we can to ensure that the Ukrainians have what they need for this next looming uh, confrontation, which will be in the southeastern part of Ukraine. General David Petraeus, thank you so much. Really appreciate all those insights. Coming up, Beyond the borders of Ukraine, the extra efforts in Poland to help millions of Ukrainian refugees who need a safe place to stay. Stay with us. Amid the harrowing stories and horrific sights of Ukraine, millions of people have fled to neighboring countries. Poland has welcomed two and a half million Ukrainian refugees, nearly all of them women and children. And as CNN's Kyung La reports from Warsaw, Polish citizens are trying to make their transition to a foreign land as comfortable as possible. This office building in downtown Warsaw is not just real estate. It's refuge. Ukrainian children play with toys in what used to be a storage room. Strollers sit in corporate hallways. Computer desks are dining room tables. Two stories of the seven-floor office building are now home to refugees. Like 18-month-old Milana and her mother. We feel safe, she says. There's no sirens, no horrible sounds. Two and a half million Ukrainians, nearly all women and children, have crossed into Poland since the start of the war. And you just remove the lights. We removed the lights and we installed this here. The country has managed to absorb them in just six weeks through ingenuity. Like elevators that serves offices and behind the column, 
there is an elevator that serves uh, just refugees. Anna Fialkowska is CEO for TFG Asset Management, which owns the building. We have beds and uh, shelves, whatever is necessary. The war started on a Thursday. The company had the space available and pivoted from commerce to crisis. So here we had a, like a small reception desk. Three days later, none of this existed. It was just a matter of putting an additional installation in piping. They had the first of nearly 250 women and children move in. We have this place. We can do something, do something for real people, right? So we just decided to do it. Was that the hard part or the easy part? Um, that was the easiest part to set it up. The hardest part right now is to make them feel good, solve their problems, the refugees' problems. I'm from Ukraine. Seven-year-old Margot lives here with her mother Oksana Karobka. This used to be office furniture, she explains, with the addition of a donated bed. <laughs> oh, it is. It's pretty. It's pretty comfortable. This has been home since the start of the war. Karobka is an accountant. Her husband fights in Dnipro, near the eastern flank. Oh, it's your husband? No, please talk to him. Hello. They never know when he'll be able to call. This is my husband, Max. I can't comprehend it, says Karobka. It's as if we're in a 40-day horror movie and we can't wake up. One floor above, employees do their best to carry on with their jobs. I do not know anybody who is saying, I don't care. Everybody cares. Everybody wants to help. His employees sending whatever they can downstairs. Whatever is needed, uh, either desks, either vacuum cleaners, we, we just try to help as supplements to our new neighbors. But war has meant the days of business as usual are over. We really also learning from them. We see how they are coping with these tragic events and this tragic situation. And it's really make you feel happy, but also makes you feel uh, that you're doing something good. Now, the big difference for these women and children is that this is some semblance of semi-permanence. The doors close in these offices. They're not on cots. The Internet is secure and it is stable. There's a volunteer doctor that comes in once a week and sets up and looks at all of the children and they can go to school from this address. So, Jake, this is just one slice of something that is being repeated millions of times over here in Europe. Jake. Kyunglan, Warsaw, Poland for us. Thank you so much for that report. How a leading member of Congress wants to make sure Russians responsible for war crimes are actually held accountable for their vile actions. That's next. We're back with our world lead in what feels like an all-too-rare show of unity in the halls of Congress. Republican and Democratic lawmakers are calling for greater and faster military assistance to Ukraine. While the Biden administration says the U.S. is providing assistance at a historic pace, a bipartisan group of dozens of representatives and senators writing a letter to President Biden, quote, Ukrainians are clear, more needs to be done. Joining us now to discuss co-chair of the Senate's Ukraine caucus and chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, a Democratic Senator uh, Dick Durbin. Senator, you and fellow members of Congress spoke with members of Ukraine's parliament last week. I think we had one of those members of parliament on earlier in the show. 
Has the U.S. delivered on what Ukrainian lawmakers have asked for? Have they done it? Has the United States done it quickly enough? What more still needs to be done? First, Jake, let me say Slavo Karini. And let me say also that our hearts and souls are with the people of Ukraine in this valiant, uh, courageous effort that they are waging uh, successfully, I might add, against the Russian invasion. The United States and NATO are on their side. Uh, we have provided massive amounts of equipment, ammunition, and resources for them to engage in the fight. We need to do more, and we need to do it quickly. Time is of the essence. If the parliamentarians made one thing clear, they need help, and they need it yesterday. Uh, they don't need to wait for weeks at a time. So we've had a secret briefing, classified briefing here, meeting with our uh, diplomatic as well as our defense experts, uh, bringing that message home. Uh, and they are really moving, I believe, in response to it. I talked to a military officer yesterday who said that the Biden administration uh, needs to move at the speed of war, not the speed of bureaucracy. Uh, can't there still be steps taken, red tape cut, to make this uh, much more efficient? Absolutely. There's no question about it. Uh, and I believe they're doing a good job. They can do a better job. And it really is a life and death struggle. Uh, it, delay does not mean discomfort uh, in an awkward situation. It means the possibility of dying and suffering, being wounded. Uh, and we have to look at it that way. If it were our own members of our family who were on the front line fighting, we'd want everything that they needed in their hands at this moment. So we are going to urge this administration and Congress to respond accordingly. I understand you're also introducing legislation called the War Crimes Accountability Act in the coming days, which you say will help hold the perpetrators of war crimes in Ukraine accountable. Um, how do you expect this to deliver real consequences, especially uh, regarding Putin or his military commanders? Well, I was stunned to learn that when it comes to war crimes and war criminals, there are terrible gaps in American law. We want to make sure by this uh, proposal that I'm putting before the Congress, that there is no safe haven in the United States for a war criminal, that anyone who comes into the United States accused of those crimes can be prosecuted for those crimes even in the United States, or held liable on a civil basis, or deported based on a war crime. All those things seem so obvious. You say, well, that must be in the law already. It's not. And we've seen it, unfortunately, in modern history time and again. We've uh, found people who have been war criminals who've come to the United States for safe haven. We've discovered them and found out the only thing we could charge them with was visa fraud, for goodness sakes. So this is serious. And it's not only to make sure the United States does the right thing, but to say to nations around the world, you saw the terrible results of the sadism and genocide in Bucha. And we've got to make sure that across the world, we say to those Russians who were involved in that, there is no safe place for you to rest. You cannot escape your responsibility for what you've done to these poor people. CNN's Stephen Collinson wrote in, a, in an article today titled The West is Running Out of Ways to Punish Putin. Uh, he writes, quote, Putin is creating an awful new spectacle for the 21st century, that of a dictator who cannot be deterred. In many ways, he's playing an asymmetric game with the West, whose sanctions and punitive measures are based on a more logical view of Russia's interests and its own limitations. So, Senator, the question I have for you, the U.S. and European allies just announced a new round of sanctions, but notably... European countries remain divided on imposing what would actually cause Putin perhaps to change his behavior, a ban on Russian oil and gas imports. Uh, Bloomberg reports Putin could collect billions if Russian oil and gas keeps flowing. Is it time for a different strategy? 
Well, uh, of course, I'm in for the strongest sanctions possible. We've got to keep our coalition, our NATO allies together with us. They've done remarkable things standing behind Ukraine, and they will continue to. But each country comes to this uh, challenge with a different set of circumstances. We have to be mindful of that. We have to work with our allies, but continue to put more and more and more pressure on the Russians and on Vladimir Putin. The ultimate problem, Jake, gets down to this. Putin is doing uncivilized things. We are trying to think of civilized responses, sanctions, for example. We've got to push those to the absolute exaggerated position where they do affect the average person in the street in Moscow. And that, I think, will start to make a difference in that country. You also introduced a bill with Republican Senator Chuck Grassley called the Baltic Defense and Deterrence Act. You've said you have strong ties to the the Baltic region, which includes, of course, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania. All are members of NATO. Why do you think it's important to direct further resources to defend those countries if they're already protected by NATO membership? Well, uh, I can tell you that I will confess my bias. My mother was born in Lithuania, and for the past 30 years, I've managed to witness the history of that country as it emerged from the Soviet Union and became a free democracy. And I value the Baltics, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania on a personal basis. Remember, these are small countries, three million in one country, two million in another, a million people in the third. And they are in a piece of crossroads in Europe where they're in a vulnerable position. Their membership in NATO was a great day, and I was happy to be a small part of that. But now they're vulnerable again. What we're calling for, Senator Grassley and myself on a bipartisan basis, is to make sure that we have the strength for those countries to respond to anything that Lukashenko in Belarus or Putin in Russia throws at them. They need that kind of reassurance, and I know that I know this president, having spoken to him personally, is prepared to do it. Before I let you go, Senator, uh, I want to ask you about the Supreme Court nomination, uh, Judge Kentanji uh, Brown Jackson. Um, do you think we will have a new Supreme Court justice by the end of the week? Well, I have my fingers crossed. As a person who's been in the Senate for a few years and as whip, you don't count the votes until you hear them answer the roll calls. But we have the Democrats solid, and we now have three uh, my Republican colleagues, Mitt Romney, Lisa Murkowski, Susan Collins, who stepped up and joined us in this effort to make it bipartisan. And I can tell you, Judge Jackson deserves that. She's an extraordinary person. She'll make a great contribution to America on our Supreme Court. Senator Dick Durbin, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it, sir. Coming up next, the hypersonic missile test that the U.S. had tried to keep quiet, no longer, plus the heated exchange today between Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin and Republican Congressman uh, Matt Gates. Beautiful shots, beautiful. We're back in Ukraine. Over the past few weeks, Russia has claimed it has used a powerful new weapon, hypersonic missiles, which can fly well in excess of 3,000 miles an hour. But now CNN has learned details about a successful U.S. hypersonic missile test. Let's go to CNN's Barbara Starr, live to Pentagon for us. Barbara, this happened last month, you tell us, but it's been kept quiet. It has been kept quiet, Jake. Uh, U.S. officials are telling my colleague, Orrin Lieberman, that they deliberately kept last month's test quiet out of concern that it would lead to some kind of escalatory behavior by Russia, that Russia would see it in an escalatory light. Not the first time the U.S. has delayed some military testing because of their concern about Russia. They did it with an intercontinental ballistic missile. But this program, this is one of the most highly classified, most important weapons that the U.S. is trying to develop now today. 
announcing that they would cooperate with both the UK and Australia on this program. Very high speed, as you say. And of course, that means it's very difficult to defend against, very difficult to shoot down. The Russians did demonstrate they have a fielded capability to do this. The US so far has been working on it, but has not yet fielded the actual weapon. Jake? On another uh, matter, Barbara, the Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, testified before a House uh, committee today. Uh, you had General Milley saying that the world is a more dangerous place than it's been in decades. Uh, but apparently his testimony turned into something else, an argument about wokeism? Well, um, it was the Congre- Republican congressman from Florida, Matt Gates, uh, who uh, by any measure uh, falls into the camp of Donald Trump. He is close to him, according to him. And uh, he, he took on the Secretary of Defense today about some of his favorite talking points. The Secretary didn't have a lot of patience for it. But while everyone else in the world seems to be developing capabilities and being more strategic, we got time to embrace critical race theory at West Point, to embrace socialism at the National Defense University, to do mandatory pronoun training. Do you it's, assess? You know, it's, it's, again, this is the most capable, the most combat credible force in the world. It has been, and it will be so uh, going forward. Not if and we this continue down this path. To do that. Not if we embrace socialism. The, the fact that you're embarrassed by your by your country. By oh your no, no, country, no! I'm embarrassed by I'm, your leadership. I'm sorry. Look, Lloyd Austin knew exactly what Matt Gates would be going after. He has done it before to both the Secretary of Defense and other Pentagon officials, so it was no surprise. Keep in mind, perhaps, both Secretary Austin and General Mark Milley, the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, who is sitting right next to him right now, are working around the clock to keep a NATO coalition together in the face of the genocide and war crimes that you were seeing right there in Ukraine. Jake, this is what the Pentagon is focused on front and center right now. Barbara Starr at the Pentagon for us. Thanks so much. Also in the U.S., a severe weather threat tops our national lead. Parts of the southeastern United States, including Georgia, Alabama, and Florida, could get tornadoes this evening. Tornado watches today have covered Gulf Coast cities such as Mobile and Panama City. Let's get right to CNN meteorologist Tom Sater. And Tom, walk us through this severe weather threat. Well, Jake, uh, for the third time in as many weeks, we've had a multi-day severe weather outbreak. What typically is known as Tornado Alley from Texas, Oklahoma, and Kansas due to our changing climate, for the last several years, it's been sliding to the east and the southeast. When you look at the last 24 hours, it started yesterday, a lot of flooding in Dallas, numerous wind reports, already 13 tornadoes, and that number will go up today. This morning, it was southern Mississippi, Alabama, and now they're firing up across southern Georgia and toward South Carolina, where radar has been showing not only uh, circulation but debris balls. That means radar showing debris being lofted into the air. Doesn't look impressive right now. You're getting closer in orange, severe thunderstorm warnings. But in purple, this is Savannah, Georgia. And we've got a new one now, including Columbia, South Carolina. If you're watching Columbia, you've got about 30 or 35 minutes. Flash flood watches. Atlanta was under a flash flood warning for a while. That's just been lifted. But Jake, last month, we broke an all-time record, 219 tornadoes when the average is 80. And we're just now getting into the thick of it for April, May, and June. The severe threat in Missouri from St. Louis to Fayetteville slides again into the southeast for tomorrow. Again, it's the third day in as many weeks, Jake. And again, we're going to be watching tornadoes firing up, but straight line winds could be widespread with over 75 miles per hour. Jake. 
All right, Tom Sander, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Uh, actually, before we go, Tom, let me ask you, spring storms sure. are typical this time uh, of year. Um, but uh, I have to ask, have we seen a higher frequency of these strong storm systems in recent weeks? Yes, we have. And as I mentioned just moments ago, it used to be Tornado Alley. It's really a changing climate. They're becoming more intense, the instability, the more atmos- uh, moisture in the atmosphere. So again, they are shifting uh, again toward the southeastern region. So what used to be the Wizard of Oz, it's now sliding in toward the southeast. But prepare, it's going to be another rough night tonight and day tomorrow. Tom Sater, thanks so much. Appreciate it. The possibility of a remarkable comeback in the coming days. That's next. Lastly, in our sports lead today, Tiger Woods is scheduled to tee off at the Masters Thursday morning. He told reporters today, quote, as of right now, I feel like I am going to play, unquote. He wants that green jacket again. Simple. Do you think you can win the Masters this week? I do. I can hit it just fine. And I, I, I don't have any qualms about what I can do physically from a golf standpoint. It's now walking is the hard part. There were doubts that Woods would ever even play golf again after he seriously injured his leg last year after he crashed his car driving at extremely high speeds. As Woods said, the challenge now is walking the notoriously hilly Augusta National Course. 25 years ago, Woods won his first Masters tournament. He's won four times since then. Woods will play nine more practice holes tomorrow. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the TikTok at Jake Tapper. If you ever miss an episode of the show, you can listen to The Lead wherever you get your podcasts. I will be back tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern for CNN Tonight with more live from Lviv and from our reporters on the front lines of this bloody invasion. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. I'll see you later tonight. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.